Section 3 being Book 1, Chapter 4 of The Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico by William H. Prescott. Book 1, Chapter 4. Mexican Hieroglyphics, Manuscripts, Arithmetic, Chronology, Astronomy. It is a relief to turn from the gloomy pages of the preceding chapter to a brighter side of the picture, and to contemplate the same nation in its generous struggle to raise itself from a state of barbarism, and to take a positive rank in the scale of civilization. It is not the less interesting that these efforts were made on an entirely new theatre of action, apart from those influences that operate in the old world, the inhabitants of which, forming one great brotherhood of nations, are knit together by sympathies that make the faintest spark of knowledge struck out in one quarter, spread gradually wider and wider, until it has diffused a cheering light over the remotest. It is curious to observe the human mind in this new position, conforming to the same laws as on the ancient continent, and taking a similar direction in its first inquiries after truth. So similar indeed as, although not warranting perhaps the idea of imitation, to suggest at least that of a common origin. In the Eastern Hemisphere we find some nations, as the Greeks for instance, early smitten with such a love of the beautiful as to be unwilling to dispense with it, even in the graver productions of science, and other nations again proposing a severer end to themselves, to which even imagination and elegant art were made subservient. The productions of such a people must be criticised not by the ordinary rules of taste, but by their adaptation to the peculiar end for which they were designed. Such were the Egyptians in the Old World, and the Mexicans in the New. We have already had occasion to notice the resemblance borne by the latter nation to the former in their religious economy. We shall be more struck with it in their scientific culture, especially their hieroglyphical writing and their astronomy. To describe actions and events by delineating visible objects seems to be a natural suggestion, and is practised after a certain fashion by the rudest savages. The North American Indian carves an arrow on the bark of trees to show his followers the direction of his march, and some other sign to show the success of his expeditions. But to paint intelligibly a consecutive series of these actions, forming what Warburton has happily called picture-writing, requires a combination of ideas that amounts to a positively intellectual effort. Yet further, when the object of the painter, instead of being limited to the present, is to penetrate the past, and to gather from its dark recesses lessons of instruction for coming generations, we see the dawnings of a literary culture, and recognise the proof of a decided civilization in the attempt itself, however imperfectly it may be executed. The literal imitation of objects will not answer for this more complex and extended plan. It would occupy too much space as well as time in the execution. 
it then becomes necessary to abridge the pictures, to confine the drawings to outlines, or to such prominent parts of the bodies delineated as may readily suggest the whole. This is the representative or figurative writing, which forms the lowest stage of hieroglyphics. But there are things which have no type in the material world, abstract ideas, which can only be represented by visible objects supposed to have some quality analogous to the idea intended. This constitutes symbolical writing, the most difficult of all to the interpreter, since the analogy between the material and immaterial object is often purely fanciful or local in its application. Who, for instance, could suspect the association which made a beetle represent the universe as with the Egyptians, or a serpent typify time as with the Aztecs? The third and last division is the phonetic, in which signs are made to represent sounds, either entire words or parts of them. This is the nearest approach of the hieroglyphical series to that beautiful invention, the alphabet, by which language is resolved into its elementary sounds, and an apparatus supplied for easily and accurately expressing the most delicate shades of thought. The Egyptians were well skilled in all three kinds of hieroglyphics, but although their public monuments display the first class, in their ordinary intercourse and written records it is now certain that they almost wholly relied on the phonetic character. Strange that having thus broken down the thin partition which divided them from an alphabet, their latest monuments should exhibit no nearer approach to it than their earliest. The Aztecs also were acquainted with the several varieties of hieroglyphics, but they relied on the figurative infinitely more than on the others. The Egyptians were at the top of the scale, the Aztecs at the bottom. In casting the eye over a Mexican manuscript, or map as it is called, one is struck with the grotesque caricatures it exhibits of the human figure, monstrous overgrown heads on puny misshapen bodies, which are themselves hard and angular in their outlines, and without the least skill in composition. On closer inspection, however, it is obvious that it is not so much a rude attempt to delineate nature, as a conventional symbol, to express the idea in the most clear and forcible manner, in the same way as the pieces of similar value on a chessboard, while they correspond with one another in form, bear little resemblance, usually, to the objects they represent. Those parts of the figure are most distinctly traced, which are the most important. So also the colouring, instead of the delicate gradations of nature, exhibits only gaudy and violent contrasts, such as may produce the most vivid impression. For even colours, as Gama observes, speak in the Aztec hieroglyphics. But in the execution of all this, the Mexicans were much inferior to the Egyptians. The drawings of the latter, indeed, are exceedingly defective when criticised by the rules of art, for they were as ignorant of perspective as the Chinese, and only exhibited the head in profile, with the eye in the centre, and with total absence of expression but they handled the pencil more gracefully than the Aztecs, were more true to the natural forms of objects, and above all showed great superiority in abridging the original figure by giving only the outlines, or some characteristic or essential feature. This simplified the process and facilitated the communication of thought. An Egyptian text has almost the appearance of alphabetical writing in its regular lines of minute figures, 
A Mexican text looks usually like a collection of pictures, each one forming the subject of a separate study. This is particularly the case with the delineations of mythology, in which the story is told by a conglomeration of symbols that may remind one more of the mysterious anaglyphs sculptured on the temples of the Egyptians than of their written records. The Aztecs had various emblems for expressing such things as, from their nature, could not be directly represented by the painter, as, for example, the years, months, days, the seasons, the elements, the heavens, and the like. A tongue denoted speaking, a footprint, travelling, a man sitting on the ground, an earthquake. These symbols were often very arbitrary, varying with the caprice of the writer, and it requires a nice discrimination to interpret them, as a slight change in the form or position of the figure intimated a very different meaning. An ingenious writer asserts that the priests devised secret symbolic characters for the record of their religious mysteries. It is possible, but the researches of Champollion lead to the conclusion that the similar opinion formerly entertained respecting the Egyptian hieroglyphics is without foundation. Lastly, they employed, as above stated, phonetic signs, though these were chiefly confined to the names of persons and places, which, being derived from some circumstance or characteristic quality, were accommodated to the hieroglyphical system. Thus the town, Simatlan, was compounded of Simatl, a root, which grew near it, and Tlan, signifying near. Tlashkalan meant the place of bread, from its rich fields of corn. Hueshotzinko, a place surrounded by willows. The names of persons were often significant of their adventures and achievements. That of the great Tezcucan prince, Nesahualcoyotl, signified hungry fox, intimating his sagacity and his distresses in early life. The emblems of such names were no sooner seen than they suggested to every Mexican the person and place intended and when painted on their shields, or embroidered on their banners, became the armorial bearings by which city and chieftain were distinguished, as in Europe, in the age of chivalry. But although the Aztecs were instructed in all the varieties of hieroglyphical painting, they chiefly resorted to the clumsy method of direct representation. Had their empire lasted, like the Egyptian, several thousand, instead of the brief space of two hundred years, they would doubtless, like them, have advanced to the more frequent use of the phonetic writing. But before they could be made acquainted with the capabilities of their own system, the Spanish conquest, by introducing the European alphabet, supplied their scholars with a more perfect contrivance for expressing thought, which soon supplanted the ancient pictorial character. Clumsy as it was, however, the Aztec picture-writing seems to have been adequate to the demands of the nation, in their imperfect state of civilization. By means of it were recorded all their laws, and even their regulations for domestic economy, their tribute-rolls, specifying the imposts of the various towns, their mythology, calendars, and rituals, their political annals, carried back to a period long before the foundation of the city. They digested a complete system of chronology, and could specify with accuracy the dates of the most important events in their history, the year being inscribed on the margin against the particular circumstance recorded. 
It is true, history thus executed must necessarily be vague and fragmentary. Only a few leading incidents could be presented, but in this it did not differ much from the monkish chronicles of the Dark Ages, which often dispose of years in a few brief sentences, quite long enough for the annals of barbarians. In order to estimate aright the picture-writing of the Aztecs, one must regard it in connection with oral tradition, to which it was auxiliary. In the colleges of the priests, the youth were instructed in astronomy, history, mythology, etc., and those who were to follow the profession of hieroglyphical painting were taught the application of the characters appropriated to each of these branches. In a historical work, one had charge of the chronology, another of the events. Every part of the labour was thus mechanically distributed. The pupils, instructed in all that was before known in their several departments, were prepared to extend still further the boundaries of their imperfect science. The hieroglyphics served as a sort of stenography, a collection of notes, suggesting to the initiated much more than could be conveyed by a literal interpretation. This combination of the written and the oral comprehended what may be called the literature of the Aztecs. Their manuscripts were made of different materials, of cotton cloth or skins nicely prepared, of a composition of silk and gum, but for the most part of a fine fabric from the leaves of the aloe, agave americana, called by the natives margay, which grows luxuriantly over the tablelands of Mexico. A sort of paper was made from it, resembling somewhat the Egyptian papyrus, which, when properly dressed and polished, is said to have been more soft and beautiful than parchment. Some of the specimens still existing exhibit their original freshness, and the paintings on them retain their brilliancy of colours. They were sometimes done up into rolls, but more frequently into volumes of moderate size, in which the paper was shut up, like a folding screen, with a leaf or tablet of wood at each extremity, that gave the whole, when closed, the appearance of a book. The length of the strips was determined only by convenience. As the pages might be read and referred to separately, this form had obvious advantages over the rolls of the ancients. At the time of the arrival of the Spaniards, great quantities of these manuscripts were treasured up in the country. Numerous persons were employed in painting, and the dexterity of their operations excited the astonishment of the conquerors. Unfortunately, this was mingled with other and unworthy feelings. The strange unknown characters inscribed on them excited suspicion. They were looked on as magic scrolls, and were regarded in the same light with the idols and temples, as the symbols of a pestilent superstition that must be extirpated. The first Archbishop of Mexico, Don Juan de Zumuraga, a name that should be as immortal as that of Omar, collected these paintings from every quarter, especially from Tezcuco, the most cultivated capital in Anahuac and the great depository of the national archives. He then caused them to be piled up in a mountain heap, as it is called by the Spanish writers themselves, and reduced them all to ashes. His greater countryman, Archbishop Ximenez, had celebrated a similar auto da fe of Arabic manuscripts in Granada some twenty years before. Never did fanaticism achieve two more signal triumphs than by the annihilation of so many curious monuments of human ingenuity and learning. 
the unlettered soldiers were not slow in imitating the example of their prelate. Every chart and volume which fell into their hands was wantonly destroyed, so that when the scholars of a later and more enlightened age anxiously sought to recover some of these memorials of civilization, nearly all had perished, and the few surviving were jealously hidden by the natives. Through the indefatigable labours of a private individual, however, a considerable collection was eventually deposited in the archives of Mexico, but was so little heeded there that some were plundered, others decayed piecemeal from damps and mildews, and others again were used up as waste paper. We contemplate with indignation the cruelties inflicted by the early conquerors, but indignation is qualified with contempt when we see them thus ruthlessly trampling out the spark of knowledge, the common boon and property of all mankind. We may well doubt which has the strongest claims to civilization, the victor or the vanquished. A few of the Mexican manuscripts have found their way from time to time to Europe, and are carefully preserved in the public libraries of its capitals. They are brought together in the magnificent work of Lord Kingsborough, but not one is there from Spain. The most important of them, for the light it throws on the Aztec institutions, is the Mendoza Codex, which, after its mysterious disappearance for more than a century, has at length reappeared in the Bodleian Library at Oxford. It has been several times engraved. The most brilliant in colouring, probably, is the Borgian collection in Rome. The most curious, however, is the Dresden Codex, which has excited less attention than it deserves. Although usually classed among Mexican manuscripts, it bears little resemblance to them in its execution. The figures of objects are more delicately drawn, and the characters, unlike the Mexican, appear to be purely arbitrary and are possibly phonetic. Their regular arrangement is quite equal to the Egyptian. The whole infers a much higher civilization than the Aztec, and offers abundant food for curious speculation. Some few of these maps have interpretations annexed to them, which were obtained from the natives after the conquest. The greater part are without any, and cannot now be unriddled. Had the Mexicans made free use of a phonetic alphabet, it might have been originally easy, by mastering the comparatively few signs employed in this kind of communication, to have got a permanent key to the whole. A brief inscription has furnished a clue to the vast labyrinth of Egyptian hieroglyphics. But the Aztec characters, representing individuals or at most species, require to be made out separately, a hopeless task, for which little aid is to be expected from the vague and general tenor of the few interpretations now existing. In less than a hundred years after the conquest, the knowledge of the hieroglyphics had so far declined that a diligent Tezcucan writer complains he could find in the country only two persons, both very aged, at all competent to interpret them. It is not probable, therefore, that the art of reading these picture-writings will ever be recovered, a circumstance certainly to be regretted. Not that the records of a semi-civilized people would be likely to contain any new truth or discovery important to human comfort or progress, but they could scarcely fail to throw some additional light on the previous history of the nation, and that of the more polished people who before occupied the country. This would be still more probable if any literary relics of their Toltec predecessors were preserved and, if report be true, an important compilation from this source was extant 
at the time of the invasion, and may have, perhaps, contributed to swell the holocaust of Thumuraga. It is no great stretch of fancy to suppose that such records might reveal the successive links in the mighty chain of migration of the primitive races, and by carrying us back to the seat of their possessions in the old world, have solved the mystery which has so long perplexed the learned in regard to the settlement and civilization of the new. Besides the hieroglyphical maps, the traditions of the country were embodied in the songs and hymns which, as already mentioned, were carefully taught in the public schools. These were various, embracing the mythic legends of a heroic age, the warlike achievements of their own, or the softer tales of love and pleasure. Many of them were composed by scholars and persons of rank, and are cited as affording the most authentic record of events. The Mexican dialect was rich and expressive, though inferior to the Tezcucan, the most polished of the idioms of Anahuac. None of the Aztec compositions have survived, but we can form some estimate of the general state of poetic culture from the odes which have come down to us from the royal house of Tezcuco. Sahagun has furnished us with translations of their more elaborate prose, consisting of prayers and public discourses, which give a favourable idea of their eloquence, and show that they paid much attention to rhetorical effect. They are said to have had, also, something like theatrical exhibitions of a pantomimic sort, in which the faces of the performers were covered with masks, and the figures of birds or animals were frequently represented an imitation to which they may have been led by the familiar delineation of such objects in their hieroglyphics. In all this we see the dawning of a literary culture, surpassed, however, by their attainments in the severer walks of mathematical science. They devised a system of notation in their arithmetic, sufficiently simple. The first twenty numbers were expressed by a corresponding number of dots. The first five had specific names, after which they were represented by combining the fifth with one of the four preceding, as five and one for six, five and two for seven, and so on. Ten and fifteen had each a separate name, which was also combined with the first four to express a higher quantity. These four, therefore, were the radical characters of their oral arithmetic, in the same way as they were of the written with the ancient Romans a more simple arrangement, probably, than any existing among Europeans. Twenty was expressed by a separate hieroglyphic, a flag. Larger sums were reckoned by twenties, and, in writing, by repeating the number of flags. The square of twenty, four hundred, had a separate sign, that of a plume, and so had the cube of twenty, or eight thousand, which was denoted by a purse or sack. This was the whole arithmetical apparatus of the Mexicans, by the combination of which they were enabled to indicate any quantity. For greater expedition, they used to denote fractions of the larger sums by drawing only a part of the object. Thus half or three-fourths of a plume, or a purse, represented that proportion of their respective sums, and so on. With all this, the machinery will appear very awkward to us, who perform our operations with so much ease by means of the Arabic, or rather Indian, ciphers. It is not much more awkward, however, than the system pursued by the great mathematicians of antiquity, unacquainted with the brilliant invention which has given a new aspect to mathematical science, of determining the value, in a great measure, by the relative position of the figures. 
In the measurement of time, the Aztecs adjusted their civil year by the solar. They divided it into eighteen months of twenty days each. Both months and days were expressed by peculiar hieroglyphics, those of the former often intimating the season of the year, like the French months, at the period of the Revolution. Five complementary days, as in Egypt, were added to make up the full number of three hundred and sixty-five. They belonged to no month, and were regarded as peculiarly unlucky. A month was divided into four weeks, of five days each, on the last of which was the public fair or market day. This arrangement, different from that of the nations of the old continent, whether of Europe or Asia, has the advantage of giving an equal number of days to each month, and of comprehending entire weeks without a fraction, both in the months and in the year. As the year is composed of nearly six hours more than 365 days, there still remained an excess, which, like other nations who have framed a calendar, they provided for by intercalation. Not indeed every fourth year, as the Europeans, but at longer intervals, like some of the Asiatics. They waited till the expiration of fifty-two vague years, when they interposed thirteen days, or rather twelve and a half, this being the number which had fallen in arrear. Had they inserted thirteen, it would have been too much, since the annual excess over three hundred and sixty-five is about eleven minutes less than six hours. But as their calendar, at the time of the conquest, was found to correspond with the European, making allowance for the subsequent Gregorian reform, they would seem to have adopted the shorter period of twelve days and a half, which brought them, within an almost inappreciable fraction, to the exact length of the tropical year, as established by the most accurate observations. Indeed, the intercalation of twenty-five days in every hundred and four years shows a nicer adjustment of civil to solar time than is presented by any European calendar, since more than five centuries must elapse before the loss of an entire day. Such was the astonishing precision displayed by the Aztecs, or perhaps by their more polished Toltec predecessors, in these computations, so difficult as to have baffled, till a comparatively recent period, the most enlightened nations of Christendom. The chronological system of the Mexicans, by which they determined the date of any particular event, was also remarkable. The epoch from which they reckoned corresponded with the year 1091 of the Christian era. It was the period of the reform of their calendar, soon after their migration from Aztlan. They threw the years, as already noticed, into great cycles, of fifty-two each, which they called sheafs or bundles, and represented by a quantity of reeds bound together by a string. As often as this hieroglyphic occurs in their maps, it shows the number of half-centuries. To enable them to specify any particular year, they divided the great cycle into four smaller cycles, or indictions, of thirteen years each. They then adopted two periodical series of signs, one consisting of their numerical dots up to thirteen, the other of four hieroglyphics of the years, namely a rabbit, a reed, a flint, and a house. These latter they repeated in regular succession, setting against each one a number of the corresponding series of dots, continued also in regular succession up to thirteen. 
The same system was pursued through the four indictions, which thus, it will be observed, began always with a different hieroglyphic of the year from the preceding, and in this way each of the hieroglyphics was made to combine successively with each of the numerical signs, but never twice with the same, since four and thirteen, the factors of fifty-two, the number of years in the cycle, must admit of just as many combinations as are equal to their product. Thus every year had its appropriate symbol, by which it was at once recognised. And this symbol, preceded by the proper numbers of bundles indicating the half-centuries, showed the precise time which had elapsed since the national epoch of 1091. The ingenious contrivance of a periodical series, in place of the cumbrous system of the hieroglyphical notation, is not peculiar to the Aztecs, and is to be found among various people on the Asiatic continent. The same in principle, though varying materially in arrangement. The solar calendar above described might have answered all the purposes of the nation, but the priests chose to construct another for themselves. This was called a lunar reckoning, though nowise accommodated to the revolutions of the moon. It was formed also of two periodical series, one of them consisting of thirteen numerical signs or dots, the other of the twenty hieroglyphics of the days. But as the product of these combinations would only be two hundred and sixty, and as some confusion might arise from the repetition of the same terms for the remaining one hundred and five days of the year, they invented a third series, consisting of nine additional hieroglyphics, which, alternating with the two preceding series, rendered it impossible that the three should coincide twice in the same year, or indeed in less than 2,340 days, since 20 times 13 times 9 equals 2,340. 13 was a mystic number of frequent use in their tables. Why they resorted to that of 9 on this occasion is not so clear. This second calendar rouses a holy indignation in the early Spanish missionaries, and Father Sahagun loudly condemns it as most unhallowed, since it is founded neither on natural reason, nor on the influence of the planets, nor on the true course of the year, but is plainly the work of necromancy and the fruit of a compact with the devil. One may doubt whether the superstition of those who invented the scheme was greater than that of those who impugned it. At all events, we may, without having recourse to supernatural agency, find in the human heart a sufficient explanation of its origin, in that love of power that has led the priesthood of many a faith to effect a mystery, the key to which was in their own keeping. By means of this calendar, the Aztec priests kept their own records, regulated the festivals and seasons of sacrifice, and made all their astrological calculations. The astrological scheme of the Aztecs was founded less on the planetary influences than on those of the arbitrary signs they had adopted for the months and days. The character of the leading sign in each lunar cycle of thirteen days gave a complexion to the whole, though this was qualified in some degree by the signs of the succeeding days, as well as by those of the hours. It was in adjusting these conflicting forces that the great art of the diviner was shown. In no country, not even in ancient Egypt, were the dreams of the astrologer more implicitly deferred to. On the birth of a child he was instantly summoned, 
the time of the event was accurately ascertained, and the family hung in trembling suspense as the minister of heaven cast the horoscope of the infant, and unrolled the dark volume of destiny. The influence of the priest was confessed by the Mexican in the very first breath which he inhaled. We know little further of the astronomical attainments of the Aztecs. That they were acquainted with the cause of eclipses is evident from the representation on their maps of the disk of the moon projected onto that of the sun. Whether they had arranged a system of constellations is uncertain, though that they recognized some of the most obvious, as the Pleiades, for example, is evident from the fact that they regulated their festivals by them. We know of no astronomical instruments used by them except the dial. An immense circular block of carved stone, disinterred in 1790 in the great square of Mexico, has supplied an acute and learned scholar with the means of establishing some interesting facts in regard to Mexican science. This colossal fragment, on which the calendar is engraved, shows that they had the means of settling the hours of the day with precision, the periods of the solstices and of the equinoxes, and that of the transit of the sun across the zenith of Mexico. We cannot contemplate the astronomical science of the Mexicans, so disproportioned to their progress in other walks of civilization, without astonishment. An acquaintance with some of the more obvious principles of astronomy is within the reach of the rudest people. With a little care, they may learn to connect the regular changes of the seasons with those of the place of the sun at his rising and setting. They may follow the march of the great luminary through the heavens, by watching the stars that first brighten on his evening track, or fade in his morning beams. They may measure a revolution of the moon by marking her phases, and may even form a general idea of the number of such revolutions in a solar year. But that they should be capable of accurately adjusting their festivals by the movements of the heavenly bodies, and should fix the true length of the tropical year with a precision unknown to the great philosophers of antiquity, could be the result only of a long series of nice and patient observations, evincing no slight progress in civilization. But whence could the rude inhabitants of these mountain regions have derived this curious erudition? not from the barbarous hordes who roamed over the higher latitudes of the north, nor from the more polished races on the southern continent, with whom it is apparent they had no intercourse. If we are driven in our embarrassment, like the greatest astronomer of our age, to seek the solution among the civilized communities of Asia, we shall still be perplexed by finding, amidst general resemblance of outline, sufficient discrepancy in the details to vindicate, in the judgments of many, the Aztec claim to originality. I shall conclude the account of Mexican science with that of a remarkable festival, celebrated by the natives at the termination of the great cycle of fifty-two years. We have seen in the preceding chapter their traditions of the destruction of the world at four successive epochs. They looked forward confidently to another such catastrophe, to take place like the preceding at the close of a cycle, when the sun was to be effaced from the heavens, the human race from the earth, and when the darkness of chaos was to settle on the habitable globe. The cycle would end in the latter part of December, and as the dreary season of the winter solstice approached, 
and the diminished light of the day gave melancholy presage of its speedy extinction, their apprehensions increased, and on the arrival of the five unlucky days, which closed the year, they abandoned themselves to despair. They broke in pieces the little images of their household gods, in whom they no longer trusted. The holy fires were suffered to go out in the temples, and none were lighted in their own dwellings. Their furniture and domestic utensils were destroyed, their garments torn in pieces, and everything was thrown into disorder for the coming of the evil genii who were to descend on the desolate earth. On the evening of the last day, a procession of priests, assuming the dress and ornaments of their gods, moved from the capital towards a lofty mountain about two leagues distant. They carried with them a noble victim, the flower of their captives, and an apparatus for kindling the new fire, the success of which was an augury of the renewal of the cycle. On reaching the summit of the mountain, the procession paused till midnight, when, as the constellation of the Pleiades approached the zenith, the new fire was kindled by the friction of the sticks placed on the wounded breast of the victim. The flame was soon communicated to a funeral pile, on which the body of the slaughtered captive was thrown. As the light streamed up towards heaven, shouts of joy and triumph burst forth from the countless multitudes who covered the hills, the terraces of the temples, and the housetops, with eyes anxiously bent on the mount of sacrifice. Couriers, with torches lighted at the blazing beacon, rapidly bore them over every part of the country, and the cheering element was seen brightening on altar and hearthstone for the circuit of many a league, long before the sun, rising on his accustomed track, gave assurance that the new cycle had commenced its march, and that the laws of nature were not to be reversed. The following thirteen days were given up to festivity. The houses were cleansed and whitened, the broken vessels were replaced by new ones, the people, dressed in their gayest apparel, and crowned with garlands and chaplets of flowers, thronged in joyous procession to offer up their oblations and thanksgiving in the temples. Dances and games were instituted, emblematical of the regeneration of the world. It was the carnival of the Aztecs, or rather the national jubilee, the great secular festival like that of the Romans or ancient Etruscans, which few alive had witnessed before, or could expect to see again. End of Book 1, Chapter 4